Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Denia on Talk Shoe. It is Friday, July 22nd, 2011. I guess I'm on a track to um, finish our presentation of Matthew around the second week of August. And then I might do, I'm thinking about throwing a minor prophet in to, um, between every New Testament book I do, and possibly even an interview. I would like the opportunity, I think, as soon as I'm done with Matthew, to have um, Don Spears on here with me. And he was a 30-year Baptist pastor. And the conversation with him would probably be really interesting. So, on here, so um, I'm thinking of doing that as soon as I finish Matthew. And in fact, I'm probably going to do that as long as Don is available at that time. In the meantime, I'm going to keep on Matthew until I finish it. And, and um, then after a week or two, go to the Gospel of Mark. And, and then I decided tonight to do the book of Malachi as a, an introduction to the Gospel of Luke. That would be perfect. Yahweh willing. I, I was on Wednesday night with, um, on, on ProSync's radio program with Jim Condit Jr., who claims that Hitler was a Zionist agent, which is a totally false accusation, and a Rothschild agent, which is a totally false accusation. Yes, Hitler worked with Zionists because Hitler wanted the Jews out of Germany, and so did the Zionists. They wanted them in Palestine. It, it was perfect. Uh, I called it a perfect storm. And, and it was a perfect storm for this reason. And, and I'm sure Hitler could not have foreseen this. Hitler, um, what wants the Jews out of Germany and, and the Zionists want the Jews to move to Palestine, but not all of the Jews in Germany want to leave. And the Americans use the whole thing as an excuse and, and the Russians. To, to invent the Holocaust. And, and that's exactly what they did. And, and the entire Holocaust thing is a lie. And, and Jim Condit just won't ever understand that Adolf Hitler was fighting our fight because Jim Condit claims to be a Christian, and he's not. He's a Catholic. He has no concept of Christianity because he's a Catholic. And we we agreed tentatively on Wednesday to one day debate Christianity, one day coming soon, and, and I hope to see that day. And, and we'll find out just how much the Catholic Jim Condit really knows about Christianity. Okay, this is um, Matthew chapters 20 and 21. There's one aspect of, of Matthew chapter 19 verses 27 and 28, which I, I did not discuss last week. And that's where Peter says to Christ, Look, we have left everything and have followed you. What then is there for us? And Yahshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that those who shall be following me in the regeneration, which is the resurrection, right? And, and I explained that that word really does mean born again. Palingenesia. When the Son of Man shall sit upon his, the throne of his honor, and you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
No, there is never any mention in any of, of the eschatological sayings of Christ about Israel and the beasts of the field, or Israel and the Chinese, or Israel and the Africans, or Israel and the Mexicans. That's because it's simply not true. And whoever teaches such a thing deceives himself and deceives the people that he's pretending to be teaching. Yahshua Christ said in John chapter 3, that unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born from above, he will not see the kingdom of God, period. Only the Adamic man has the spirit of Yahweh, which makes him born from above. That's where that spirit came from. And in the image and likeness of God. In 1 John chapter 4, that same apostle tells us that we, being the children of God, are born of God, as Adam, our father, also was. And that the others, without exception, are born of the world. We are born from above, and all of those who are not of us are born from below, meaning that they are exclusively from and of the world. Therefore, none of the others shall ever see the kingdom of heaven when it is instituted on earth. Period. No exceptions. How can one claim to be a Christian Israelite, faithful in the scriptures, and pronounce otherwise? Unless he is a liar and a fraud. With that, I'll move on. Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of the heavens is like a man, a master of the house, who has gone out while it is early, before sunrise, the word, the Greek word infers, or before 6 a.m., to hire workers for his vineyard, and agreeing with the workers for a denarii in a day, that, that's a Roman coin, which was about a day's pay at, at this time, first century. He sent them into his vineyard, and having gone on about the third hour, or 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the market, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever would be just or right, I shall give to you. And they went out. Then again, having gone on about the sixth, gone out about the sixth and the ninth hours, or noon and 3 p.m., he had done likewise. Then about the eleventh hour, which is about 5 p.m., the traditional end of the Greek day was about 6 p.m., then about the eleventh hour, having gone out to, he found others standing, and he says to them, Why have you stood here idle all day? They say to him, Because no one has hired us. He says to them, You also go into the vineyard. And upon its becoming late, the master of the vineyard says to his foreman, Call the workers and pay the salary to them, beginning from the last unto the first. And those having come about the eleventh hour, each receive a denarian, which is a lot of money for working an hour, right? A day's pay for an hour. And those having come first supposed that they would receive more. And they also each received a denarian, as they had agreed. 
But receiving it, they muttered against the master of the house, saying, These last have done one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the burning heat of the day. But responding, he said to one of them, Friend, I do know, I do not wrong you. Have you not agreed with me for a denarian? Take that which is yours and go. Now I desire to give to this last man as also to you. So is it not lawful for me to do that which I desire with mine own? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Thusly the last shall be first and the first last. We must not despise our brethren who awaken at the last hour. Yeah, we could hate on them now. They're blind. They're this or they're that. We shouldn't hate on them because we were once blind and engaged with the world ourselves. Some of us claim to have open eyes and we're still engaged with the world. Neither do we dispose those who come after us with the attitude that they are beneath us. The fool says in his heart, I have been doing this for 30 years and you can't tell me anything. Out of pride, he assumes that he is justified. You do not know what favor Yahweh has bestowed upon babes until you hear them with an honest heart. To take the example one step further, neither do you really know the man who, in his sleep, may have been doing Yahweh's work subconsciously, even though you in your state of wakefulness and with eyes open to the truth may not be. So we accept our Israelite brethren in Christ as equals and as peers, as fellow workmen in the vineyard of his kingdom. We are all brethren, and we have only one master and one teacher, which is Christ. Matthew 23.10, neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. And that's one reason why, why I shun titles and, 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 and try to avoid them, on, on not only on myself, but also on others. Now, now for exemplary purposes, and, and I have to do this because it's pertinent to a lot of things that I've been discussing lately, especially concerning Israel and the law. For exemplary purposes, let us see why the workers were even paid that very evening. For all of these people who want to hold their brethren to the letter of the Hebrew law, as both James and Paul state, they had better keep the whole law. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13 states this, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. In other words, you who would boast in the law had better pay all of your bills each evening, or you have failed to keep the law. And if you think about this carefully, if you owe any debt for any service or goods you have received, and you go to sleep that night, you have failed to keep the law. Therefore, seeking righteousness by striving to keep the law, you are a hypocrite. Yahweh's moral laws, which are reflected in the Ten Commandments, they're eternal. There's no doubt. 
And if we love Christ, we shall keep them. But do not seek to rule over your brother as a Pharisee with the Levitical law as their use has been interpreted and their words have been corrupted by men. The Levitical law had its purpose for the Levitical kingdom of Yahweh. If you pretend to keep the law, you better keep the whole law. And that's just one example of a law that I know you're not keeping. Verse 17. And going up to Jerusalem, Yahshua took the twelve students by themselves in the road and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be given over over to the high priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. And they shall hand him over to the heathens, for which to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and in the third day he shall be resurrected. I have an apology to make. This verse, this paragraph, three verses, did not make it into the hard copy of the Christogenian New Testament. It may have been a typist's oversight, or it, it was definitely a proofreader's oversight by any means, or, or it may have been, you know, it may have just fell out of the text in, in editing the text with, with the word processor, which is also very possible. But they should have been in the New Testament. There's an errata page at Christogenia under the Christogenia New Testament menu, and, and um, the errata page explains all the errors as I find them. Soon, there will be another Christogenian New Testament issued, and, and when that happens, hopefully it will also appear in paperback, and that version will be corrected. I apologize. It's, it's very hard to write a book and, and have no errors in it. It's impossible. Large companies can't do it, and, and I'm a one-man operation, and I sure as hell ain't going to be able to do it. That, that's just life. I can't do it. it it's not possible. I, I, I hope to find my own corrections and make them as I go along. If anybody finds those, I would appreciate knowing about it. Don't assume that I found them, that's for sure. Okay. One thing I'm criticized for, and, and um, I'll talk about this now. In my translation, I preferred the literal translation of the word student rather than the word disciple. Because not only is the word word disciple often generally abused, but like a lot of words that lazy people have allowed the enemies of definite meanings in language to pervert, here is an example of that from a website called reference.com. Noun, one, religion. One of the twelve personal followers of Christ. Two, any follower of Christ. Three, a member of the disciples of Christ. Four, a person who is a pupil or adherent of the doctrines of another, a follower. I'll only cover the noun. It's two couple of archaic meanings as a verb. Well, well, you know, if if the average person reads this, and or if the average person looks on a search engine and, and sees reference.com, it comes up in the first couple of um, it comes up in the first couple of hits usually on Google when when you search for a, a word, just type 
disciple and definition on Google and reference.com will be right on the first page, almost certainly. And, and other dictionaries do better. But the first three definitions here obscure the fact that the word case was a very common Greek word. It wasn't a special Greek word at all. It was very common. It was used all the time in, in many contexts. It was used of those who were learning all sorts of disciplines. That's where we get disciple from, right? The same Latin word that we get discipline from. The Greek word mathetes is simply, according to Liddell and Scott, a learner or a pupil. And without all the dogma attached to the word, I've seen it defined as a blind follower. Without all the dogma attached to the word, the rendering student it is a perfect reflection of the literal Greek meaning of mathetes. And, and even though traditionalists may hate me for it, I would rather have a Bible that conveyed the plain meanings of words rather than a Bible which keeps the traditions of men. A disciple is simply a student. And that's why I translate the word in that manner. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of, Zebed, of Zebedias, Zebedee, had come forth to him with her sons, making obeisance and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She says to him, Say that these, my two sons, shall sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. Of course, she is saying this at this time, most likely because she just heard that he would be condemned and killed and resurrected, which shows that she knew what that resurrection meant. But the ancient Hebrews certainly didn't understand was that there would be at least a couple of thousand years between the resurrection of Christ, and when he finally assumes his kingdom. And it may be longer than that, right? I mean, we're not there yet. We hope to be there soon, but we're not there yet. Then replying, Yahshua said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup which I am about to drink? They say to him, We are able. He says to them, Indeed, for you to drink my cup and to sit at my right hand and left hand, is not mine to give, but for whom it has been prearranged by my Father, that this is God the Son speaking about God the Father. And hearing it, the ten had been irritated by the two brothers. Don't mothers often seem to do things that embarrass young men? All the time, I know. And the other apostles despised the two men for the forwardness of their mother, Yet the answer of Christ tells us explicitly what we see elsewhere. That the children of Israel are indeed predestined by Yahweh for that position which they shall have in his kingdom. Paul, and that's what Christ is basically teaching here, is predestination. Paul in his epistle to the Galatians says of his own ministry that, and, and I quote, it pleased Yahweh who selected me from my mother's womb and called me through his favor to reveal his son by me that I announce him among the nations. Paul also talked about predestination in, in the epistle to the Romans. 
explaining that the promises of the covenant were for those whom Yahweh foreknew, that those whom Yahweh foreknew, those he predestined. When we read the Old Testament, we see that Yahweh only foreknew the children of Israel. He never foreknew anybody else. But we do not know by what method we obtain that position, even though it's predestined. I know this is a Christian paradox, but Yahweh knows ahead of time those of us which would say, and this is a typical answer, so then, if my position in the kingdom of heaven is predestined, I don't need to do anything. And I would say, do not think that you will outsmart God. As James said, faith without works is dead. And as Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10, we should hold fast the profession, the profession of the expectation without wavering. For he making the promise is trustworthy. And we should consider one another in regard to stimulation of love and of good deeds, good works. At Titus 3.14, Paul said, And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. If you are the type of person who says in his heart, So then, if my position is predestined, I don't need to do anything. Then your predestined position is probably not a very good one in the first place. Do not think you can outsmart God. You can't. Then summoning them, Joshua said, You know that the rulers of the nations lord over them, and the nobles exercise their authority. But it is not thusly among you. Rather, he who would desire to become great among you shall be your servant. And he who would desire to be first among you shall be your slave. That's the difference between the word um, diaconus and the word doulis. A doulis is a slave, a diaconus a servant. Just as the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'll quote Hosea 3.14. I, meaning Yahweh, will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Talking about the children of Israel. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. In other words, death and the grave are going to come to a permanent end at some point in our future. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 15. None of them can by any means redeem his brother. The psalmist was talking about the wealthy men of the world, right? Nor give to God a ransom for him. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. 
We should follow the example of Christ. Those who seek the first position, those who seek to rule among us and be served by others, they are not following the example of Christ. But rather, they are following the examples of popes and kings, the popes and kings of this world. Even Paul told the Corinthians that he was happy for their submission to the gospel, quote, not because we lord over your faith. Rather, we are colleagues of your joy, for you are established in the faith, 2 Corinthians one twenty four. Paul was writing to the Corinthians in this manner, because they at the assembly in Corinth, if you read both epistles to the Corinthians carefully, they had chosen to forgive a fornicator, ostensibly a repentant fornicator, whom Paul had advised that they should eject from the assembly. Therefore, Paul told them also, and I'll quote from chapter 2 of the same epistle, Now to anyone whom you are obliging, in other words, with forgiveness, the word is the verbal form of charis, which is favor or grace, to bestow grace infers an act of forgiveness, right? Now to anyone whom you are obliging, the King James translators knew that and actually translated the word forgiving here. Likewise, I am. And for my part, whomever I oblige, if anyone I oblige, it is for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that we are not taken advantage of by the adversary or Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the Corinthians decided to forgive a fornicator, and Paul told them that for their sakes, he would also give forgive that fornicator. Not for the fornicator's sake, but for their sakes. That's the Christian example. You can forgive a repentant fornicator. Read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians carefully. A lot of people don't like that because they would rather rule over their brethren with the law, and not knowing the will of Yahweh, they would rather throw their Israelite brother into the lake of fire because he screwed up. Those people should be careful because if they're tested in that same way and they fail that test, they are going to be judged the same way they judge their brethren. You don't know what lies in your future. And Paul warns about that in Galatians chapter 6, that when you correct your brethren, to correct them humbly, lest you also be tried as they were. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. We do not rule over one another. Rather, we serve one another, and we serve one another whether we like each other or not. Throughout his letters, Paul saw himself as a servant to the assemblies of God. 
because by doing that, he was a servant to God. That's how we serve God. We serve our God by serving our brethren, since our God himself surely doesn't need anything from us. Paul was following the same example which we see in Christ. At Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, describing Christ, quote, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, Christ told everybody, or at least he told his disciples, that he was God, and he was. But made himself, if he wasn't God, he wouldn't have had the ability to make himself anything, right? But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Those who want to rule over their brethren do not make themselves to be obedient servants, but rather they attempt to make themselves even better than God, who is our only legitimate ruler. At this point, it may be fitting to read the 116th Psalm, since at verse 22 here we saw that Yahshua asked, Are you able to drink the cup which I am about to drink? In this Psalm we see that this too was related to a messianic prophecy, all of which helps us to see the consistency of the scripture. Psalm 116 from the King James. It's not very long. I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he has inclined his ear unto me. Therefore, I will call upon his name as long as I live. The sorrows of death compassed me and the pains of hell got hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, I beseech thee, deliver my soul, which means life. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous, yeah, our God is merciful. He'd better be because we are all sinners. Yahweh preserves the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Remember that Paul said that Christ was made low and he was exalted. Return unto my rest, O my soul, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. This is the example of the resurrection. I will walk before Yahweh in a land of living. I believed, therefore I have spoken. Paul quoted that. We believed, therefore we speak. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Because, as Clifton made the point, the other night, all men are liars, because even when they don't want to be liars, all men do not have the whole truth. A man cannot possibly have the truth in his mind about everything, yet we're forced to judge things that we don't have the whole truth about, and that makes us liars, right? What shall I render unto Yahweh for all his, benefit towards, his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation, and call upon the name of Yahweh, the cup Yahshua was to drink from. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people, 
his vow was to die on our behalf. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the, de- is the death of his saints. We follow his example when it is demanded of us. O Yahweh, truly I am thy servant. Why? Because we give our lives, or we would even go as far as giving our lives for our brethren. I am thy servant, the son of thine handmaid, Sarah. Thou hast loosed my bonds. We are only free by serving Yahweh. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows unto Yahweh now, in the presence of all his people, in the courts of Yahweh's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem, just as Christ did. Praise ye Yahweh. That's a messianic prophecy from beginning to end. Matthew 20, verse 29. And upon their going out from Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Yahshua passes by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, Prince, son of David. Let, let me say, and I think I mentioned it once before in the series, that by calling Christ the son of David, they were recognizing his rightful claim to the throne of David. By recognizing his rightful claim to the throne of David, they were recognizing that he was the Messiah of Israel promised by the prophets. So that phrase, son of David, actually has all of those implications tied to it at this time. But the crowd admonished them that they should be silent. Then they cried louder, Have mercy on us, Prince, Son of David. And stopping, Yahshua called them and said, What do you wish that I shall do for you? They say to him, Prince, that you would open our eyes. They understood that he had that ability. And Yahshua, being deeply moved, touched their eyes, and immediately their sight was restored, and they followed him. Just like today, the crowd of people despised the men of low estate. Even though we see the truth proceeded from their mouths. Christ honored them because they spoke the truth, and he lifted them up from their estate. A state, in this sense, meaning the situation or the circumstances of their lives, right? Christians should learn from these examples. Here, the men were blind, but the crowd was blinder. Yeah, you know, Paul's blindness was a big disgrace. The culture was heavily affected with Greek thinking, and even Hebrew culture in the Old Testament. And we could see in the law also. That if one had a physical disability, one was looked down upon. In in the Greek culture, 
and, and the Roman culture was identical. In the Greek culture, a physical disability was, was basically a disgrace because the culture highly esteemed the physical perfection of the body. Greek men worked out all day just to make themselves pretty boys. Not all of them, but a lot of them. It, it's as vain as, every bit as vain as our society is today. So blindness or, or any other disability, a lame arm, not being able to walk, being a paralytic, that they were disgraces in Greek culture. That, and, and people understood that that was a, um, well, well, in their pagan minds, they understood that that was the curses of the gods that, that would make one that way. So the crowd esteems not the blind men, but they spoke the truth, and Christ heard them. Don't care for your estate. Speak the truth and your God will bless you, even if he doesn't do it as quickly as he would like, as you would like to, to, to have that blessing, right? Verse, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 21. And when they had come near to Jerusalem, and they came into Bethsaida and to the Mount of Olives, then Yahshua sent out two students, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you shall find a leashed ass and a colt with it. Releasing it, bring it to me. And if anyone should say something to you that the prince has need of them, say that the prince has need of them. Then at once he shall send them. Here we see the prescience of Christ, which only God himself can have, and which only God can impart. As Yahweh pronounced in Isaiah chapter 41, show the things that are come, that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. If anybody claims to be talking to God, they better be able to show you the future with 100% accuracy. If they can't show you the future with 100% accuracy, then they're lying. That was the mark of the prophets. Now this happened in order that that which was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Speak to the daughter of Sion. Behold, your king comes to you, meek and mounted upon an ass, even upon a colt, son of a beast of burden. And the students, going on and doing just as Yahshua prescribed to them, they brought the ass and the foal and placed garments upon them, and he sat atop of them. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So this is a perfect fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Well, let me, um, I, I, I caught this the other night. I caught, not really criticism, but, but it was mentioned to me. I, I was asked why I used the pronunciation Zeon. And, and actually, the Greek should pro properly be Zeon, right? That, that it's not a Z at the beginning. The Jews like to say Zion, and they have us all trained to say Zion. 
But if you check the Strong's pronunciation guides in, in the back of your concordance, you'll see the, the correct pronunciation of the vowel would lead you to say Zion or Zion and not Zion. I personally don't like to give the Jews the benefit of the doubt of using their pronunciation, and, and I try not to. And, and that's just a, a, a personal little protest, right? Matthew 21.8. Actually, I'm pronouncing the word right, and all the Jews are pronouncing it wrong, and that's just tough. Matthew 21.8. Then most of the crowd had spread their own garments in the road. But others cut off branches from the trees and spread them in the road. Then the crowds leading him and those following cried out, saying, O salvation is with the son of David. These people knew that he was the Messiah. Blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh. O salvation in the heights. I like to translate Hosanna, right? Hosanna is a Hebrew phrase, and it means O salvation. So I don't write Hosanna. I write what it means. Two Kings 9.13. Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew a trumpet saying, Jehu or Yehu is king. So we see where that tradition came from. It came from the old kingdom of Israel, right? to take off your garment and let the king walk on it when you recognize him as king. So this this um, passage again shows that the people are recognizing Christ as king. It's a matter of prophecy. It had to happen, but it wasn't yet to be fulfilled. And, and, and um, an inspection of the minor prophets will prove that of Zechariah or end of Malachi. And upon his coming into Jerusalem, all the city had been agitated, crying, Who is this man? And the crowd said, This is Yahshua the prophet who is from Nazareth of Galilee. And Yahshua had entered the temple and he had cast out all the dealers and buyers in the temple and overturned the tables of the bankers and the seats of those selling doves. And he says to them, it is written, my home, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Isaiah 56, 7 refers to the house of Yahweh as a house of prayer for all peoples. At Jeremiah seven eleven, Yahweh states this. Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith Yahweh. In the context of Jeremiah chapter 7, the spoiling of the temple in this manner was the direct result of the sin of the children of Israel. The presence of the bankers and those selling doves, ostensibly for sacrifice, also shows that the religion of the Judeans had become a business, much like the business religions of today. I've even seen 
Well, when I was young, I even saw churches in New York City that had souvenir shops in, in, in the corners. It was ridiculous. The cathedrals, cathedral of, of St. John is um, a perfect example. No doubt the doves cost two or three times in the temple what they did in the common markets of the surrounding towns, and no doubt the money changers also probably exacted a much higher fee for their services because they were in the temple. We see the same thing all the time today. This event, Christ turning over the tables of the money changers and running them out of the temple, this event is also recorded in Mark chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 19, and this is the same event being referred to. There's another event not found in the first three Gospels, but recorded in John chapter 2, and it reads thus, verse 12, John 2, 12. After this, he went down into Capernaum, and his mother and brethren and his students, and they abode there for not many days. And it was near the Passover of the Judeans, and Yahshua went up to Jerusalem, and he had found seated in the temple those selling cattle and sheep and doves and the bankers. And having made a whip of ropes, he cast them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the cattle, and he spilled out the coins of the bankers, and overturned the tables. And to those selling doves he said, Take these things from here. Do not make the house of my father a house of merchandise. His students remembered that it was written, The zeal for your house consumes me. This event in John must be a distinct event. It can't be the same one being described here in Matthew and in Luke chapter 19 and Mark chapter 11. Because John's Gospel is quite chronological in its construction, where John is seen to recount the feasts and the Passovers as they pass. And you could actually count three and a half years in John by counting the feasts and the Passovers. While the event in John is similar, it is also quite different, and the circumstances that surround it are far different. Therefore, Yahshua must have done this very thing on two occasions, I, I, would, I would assert, once at the commencement of his ministry and again towards the end of his ministry. Verse 14, and they brought to him in the temple the blind and the lame, and he healed them. And seeing the wonders which he did, and the children who were in the temple crying out and saying, O oh, salvation is with the son of David, the high priest and the scribes were irritated. And they said to him, Do you hear what things they say? Then Yahshua says to them, Yes. Have you never read that from the mouths of babes and infants you have restored praise, you meaning Yahweh? And leaving them, he departed out of the city to Bethania, and lodged there. Bethany. They were upset with him because his abilities challenged their perceived ecclesiastical authority. If they were ever really interested in the things of God, 
they would have perceived that when the blind were made to see and the lame were made to walk, that indeed God was with them. But they knew not God because they were not of God, as John explains later in his first epistle. Yahshua quoted Psalm 8, verse 2, and it is interesting to read the entire passage. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Now, Yahshua was obviously quoting the Septuagint, and I will read that. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou perfected praise. And that same word can be transferred, can be translated restored. Because of thine enemies, that thou mightest put down the enemy and the avenger. Yahshua told us this for a reason. He quoted this passage to these priests when they, when, when they questioned him for a reason. It proves that they are his enemies. It proves that they are not his people. Otherwise, why would he choose this passage when he could have given 5,000 answers from the Old Testament in, 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 in answer to the question that they posed him with? He was telling them, even though they didn't know the scripture, time and again it's proven they didn't know the scripture. Usually bureaucratic priests do not know the scripture, right? That they're interested in running something and, and don't care about the scripture. Well, here we see that. They didn't know the scripture, or they'd have realized that he was labeling them as his enemies. And he does that for our sakes. We know who they are. Now we do anyway. With 2C line Christian Israel identity, we know who they are. Then at dawn, going back to the city, he hungered. And seeing one fig tree by the road... He came upon it and found nothing in it except leaves only. And he says to it, No longer shall there be fruit from you forever. And immediately the fig tree withered. While there are some similar verses in the Old Testament about trees, including figs, which bear no fruit, the only passage which seems to be pertinent to this to, to this event is found in Jeremiah chapter 24, and I will read it. I'll read the chapter in its entirety. It's not very long. Yahweh showed me, and behold, this is Jeremiah writing, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh, after the, the, the book of Drezar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. 
One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. Trees that cannot be eaten by the children of Adam are usually not of the Adamic tree line, right? The Adamic family. <laughs> Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah. Daniel was among them. Whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. Daniel was a very young man among them. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Yahweh is describing the remnant of Judah. And as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, so I will give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem, in other words, people were left behind, that remain in this land, and then that dwell in the land of Egypt, the Jews of Alexandria, for instance, even though Alexandria itself was built later. There were plenty of Judeans in Egypt at this time. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse. In all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land, that I gave to them and to their fathers. We see in Luke 21-24 that the enemies of Christ, and I quote, shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led captive, away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the heathen until the times of the heathen shall be fulfilled, or nations this fig tree in Matthew must be representative of the people of Jerusalem, that there would be no fruit from it forever from the time of Christ, because these are the bad figs of Jeremiah. While there were good figs in Judea, they were already, for the most part, disciples of Christ and would be converts to Christianity. All of those who were not converts by the, by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, there would be no fruit from forever. And therefore, Christians are obliged to reject all Jews without exception. If a Judean 
came out of the first century, and he was still a Jew by religion. Well then, the word of Christ said that there would be no fruit from those people forever. Another clue as to the identity of the fig tree is found in Matthew 24:32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. When we cover that chapter here in a couple of weeks, we will postulate that the time is now that the withered fig tree has shot forth its branches. And that is an indication to us that the harvest is near. However, since Joshua said there would be no fruit from that fig tree in Jerusalem forever, don't ever imagine that there could be a Jew for Jesus. And seeing it, the students marveled, saying, How could the fig tree have withered immediately? Then Joshua responding said to them, Truly I say to you, if you would have faith and not doubt, you would not only do such of the fig tree, but you would also say to this mountain, be raised and cast into the sea. It will be. And all things, whatever you should ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. But we must ask ourselves first what our motives are for that which we pray for. James one five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That's a good thing to pray for. That gives to all men liberally, to all Adamic men, and upbraideth, upbraids not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. I'm sorry, I'm quoting the King James here. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, we should be firm in our convictions. If we're not firm in our convictions, I would say that we need to study. James 4.3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss, that you may consume it or spend it upon your lusts. In other words, if I prayed for a million dollars and received it, I'd probably be at the casino with a whore, right? Well, well, that would be a lot of us, I'm, I'm sure. I'm not saying I wouldn't, but that would be a lot of us. And upon his having come into the temple, I, I'm sorry, Romans, I, I wanted to quote Romans 8.26 here. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought to. But the Spirit itself, meaning our spirit, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And, and those verses may seem disconnected, but the truth is that many of us ask, and it's not in faith, and we should watch what we pray for. Wisdom is a good thing to pray for. Study, and we may have it. A lot of us ask, and we don't receive it, because we will only spend it on our lusts. And as Paul explains in Romans chapter 8, the things that we really need, we don't know what they are. And those things we never ask for. But our spirit knows, 
our subconscious mind, if I have to put it that way, knows. And if we have faith, that will pray for us, right? Verse 23, and upon his having come into the temple while teaching, the high priests and the elders of the people came forth, came forth to him saying, by what authority do you do these things? And who has given to you this authority? In other words, Christ didn't have a priest license. Then replying, Yahshua said to them, I shall ask you one question, which if you should tell me, I shall also tell you by what authority I do these things. And from this we could see that it is not improper to answer a question with a question. Verse 25. For where was the immersion of John, the baptism of John? From of heaven or from of men? Then they disputed among themselves, saying, If we should say from heaven, he shall say to us, For what reason then have you not believed him? But if we should say from men, we fear the crowd. For they all esteem John as a prophet. And replying to to Yahshua, they said, We do not know. Imagine that. And he said to them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. The Pharisees could not properly answer him, so he did not have to answer them. Now, what do you suppose? A man had two sons. And having come forth to the first, he said, Son, go. Today you must work in the vineyard. But he responding said, I do not want to. But regretting it later, he went. Then coming forth to the other, he spoke likewise. And responding, he said, I shall, master. Yet he had not gone. Who out of the two sons has done the will of his father? The student said the first. Joshua says to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and the whores shall go into the kingdom of Yahweh before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the whores believed him. And you, seeing it, have not later repented for which to believe him. Those who claim to keep the word and do not uphold it, like that son that said, I'll go, and he never went, they will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But note that they'll be there, because all Israelites will be there. The coming of John was foretold in the prophets. Here, by the word of Yahweh, even whores enter the kingdom of heaven. That's quite contrary to what the modern-day Pharisees are claiming of late, and Malfi Patricia and Dan Kersey and Jeff Westover take note. Even whores will enter the kingdom of heaven, and the whores are going to be there before you because you claim to be following the law, and you're not. You're a bunch of damned hypocrites. So you take note of this verse in Matthew.
Matthew 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a man, a master of a house, who planted a vineyard. and put a fence around it, and dug a trough in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and he traveled abroad. Then when the time for the fruits approached, he sent his servants to the husbandmen to receive of its fruits. And the husbandmen taking his servants, then it cudgeled one and killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then later he sent to them his son, saying, They shall respect my son. But the husbandmen, seeing the son, said among themselves, He is the heir. Come, we should kill him that we would have his inheritance. And taking him, they cast him outside of the vineyard and killed him. So when the master of the vineyard should come, what shall he do to those husbandmen? They say to him, he shall destroy the wicked, the wicked one horribly, and let the vineyard out to other husbandmen, who shall render to him the fruits in their seasons. If the people in power in Judea were truly the children of God, and we've already demonstrated that Yahshua has told us they were his enemies, right, in this chapter. If they were Israelites, they too would have been heirs to the kingdom. And they would have heard the voice of their master being tenants. They were merely allowed to run the vineyard by its rightful owner, Yahweh. So we have the Edomite rulers of Judea. So we have the Canaanites who had been infiltrating Jerusalem all the way back to the Old Kingdom period. And Ezekiel chapter 16 and Jeremiah chapter 2 prove beyond doubt. And 1 Chronicles, the end of 1 Chronicles chapter 1, prove beyond doubt that the Kenites and Canaanites had infiltrated Jerusalem during the Old Kingdom. While many of the leaders were Israelites, while the kings were Israelites, but a lot of their advisors were not, according to the Apostle John, at chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, we see this. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, meaning the chief people of, of the city, right? Also, many believed in him, but be, in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue or the assembly hall. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we see that a lot of real Judah, a lot of Israelites, because of the Pharisees, would not profess their belief in Christ, because they loved the society more. 
a lot of people today, they believe Israel identity. They believe the truth. They believe the Bible on the racial issue, but they don't practice it because they love the world more than they love God. They're in the same position as these Pharisees. Additionally, the high priests at the time were the Sadducees. They weren't even Pharisees. And the Sadducees were a group much more hateful of Christ and Christians than the Pharisees were. And a group so vile that they are rarely even mentioned by the apostles. That the Sadducees were Edomites is fully evident in the Greek of Acts chapter 4 in verses 6 and 23 where we see the, the term, the phrase, the race of the high priest used in verse 6, and then we see the term, that the description that they return to their own kinsmen or countrymen in verse 23. And to me, that makes it fully evident. And from the histories of Josephus and from Acts chapter 5, we see that the high priests who killed Christ, the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, they were actually Sadducees. They were not Pharisees. The Sadducees were the priesthood of the rich, of the wealthy, according to Josephus. And, and they rejected everything spiritual. They were the basically what, what, what I could consider to be the equivalent of today's liberal progressives. The... Um, the wealthy liberals that reject everything spiritual, the humanists, the secular humanists. Well, the master of the vineyard sent his servants and the husbandmen, the people who were in charge of the kingdom, of the vineyard in this case, killed the servants. They killed John the Baptist. They killed the prophets. Yahshua proves in Luke chapter 11, that the line of Cain was responsible for the blood of all the prophets. And it's very clear in Luke chapter 11, verses 45 through 52, I think, that the line of Cain, the race of Cain, because only the race, only Cain can be responsible for the blood of Abel. The race of Cain is responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Abel all the way down to Zechariah's who was slain between the house and the altar. So they're basically responsible for the blood of all the prophets from A to Z. That wordplay working in English, it doesn't work in Greek. Greek isn't the Z is not the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the seventh. And anyway, when we look at the Old Testament, the canonical Old Testament, and, and not um, uncanonical, untraced, unauthenticated books. When we look at the canonical Old Testament and we see who killed the priests and the prophets of Yahweh, we see um, Canaanites, we see Doug the Edomite, we see Jezebel. Even though some Israelite priests had ordered it, well, when Saul ordered that certain priests put to death, none of the men of Israel would step forth and do it. Doug the Edomite was more than happy to do it.
the children of Israel cannot be held responsible for the blood of Abel. Only Cain can. It must be the race of Cain that's responsible for the death of all the prophets. Luke chapter 11. We see that Christ was killed under the power of the dog. It's very evident in Romans chapter 9, in Revelation chapter 12, and in the history of Josephus, and elsewhere in Scripture, that it was the Canaanite Edomites of Judea that killed Christ. They are the husbandmen. That's why they're not heirs themselves. Verse 42. Yahshua says to them, Have you not ever read in the writings, the stone which the builders have rejected, this has come to be for the head cornerstone. This is a verbatim quote of Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Of course, visions of the Great Pyramid, which is without its capstone since the most ancient times, cannot be neglected. There's a story here, even if we don't know it perfectly, and um, I won't repeat it, right, because I don't. Well, there's no documentary evidence as to who built the Great Pyramid. It's a very ancient structure. It has no capstone. It never had one. By Yahweh, this has been done, and it is a wonder in our eyes. For this reason, I say to you that the kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you and given to a nation producing its fruits. This is a very abused verse, right? in scripture. A lot of fools like to um, cross-reference this verse to Paul's statement in, in Acts chapter 13, where Paul talks to certain synagogue leaders in a certain synagogue in one of the Greek cities. Paul says that he will no longer talk to them, but he will take his message to the ethnoi. And that word ethnoi in the King James Bible is translated Gentiles. And a lot of foolish Christians try to say that that is the fulfillment of this verse. And that's a lie. Because in Greek, if you have a mixed group of people, you would not call them a people. They are not a laos because they are from diverse backgrounds. Reading Acts, it is fully evident, first, that most of the assembly halls of the Judeans were attended also by Greeks, Romans, Celts, other people. That's wholly evident right in the record of Acts. And in the Greek language, because of the mixed audience, they would not be considered a laos. They can't be. They're not a people. That they're people, that they're different groups of people of diverse ethnic background, they would be considered ethnoi. And there's many places, there's several places in the King James and in the Septuagint where in those instances, when the word ethnoi is used, it's usually translated as people. 
inferring the plural. And, and that's how it should be translated in that phrase in, I think it's Acts chapter 13. Now, when we go from that passage in Acts and read the next two chapters of Acts, Acts chapters um, 14, 15, 16, we see Paul in other synagogues talking to other Judeans, right? So they basically take that entire verse out of context. It's ridiculous to take this verse here in Matthew and try to say that that's why Paul went to Gentiles. It's utterly ridiculous in the face of the Old Testament prophecy. So now I will read Micah chapter 4. Micah 4, verses 1 through 8, speaks of the children of Israel, of the Assyrian dispersions, 750 years before, well, starting from 750 years before the ministry of Christ. But in the last, last being a Hebrew metaphor for future, the word is akarith, it means in the future, but in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains. And there ain't too many Jews living in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk in the name of his God, with a small g, and we, meaning Israel, will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and, I, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off, a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And now, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. It can't be described here in a short time. I've done other programs on this at great length. When you understand the deportations of all 12 tribes, only a remnant of Judah was ever left behind. Of all 12 tribes of the Israelites by the Assyrians, and you understand their travels. They became the peoples who were later known as Chimerians and then Scythians and Saka. 
And then the Greeks in the 4th century started calling them Galatahi, and the Romans called them Gauls. Then, after the Romans became familiar with them, the Romans divided them into two groups, Gauls and Germani, or Germans. The Germanic people are the cast-off children of Israel. When they crossed Europe, they met up with earlier people, descended from the Phoenicians primarily, not totally, and from the Trojans and other groups, who were also Israelites of much earlier dispersions by sea. But the Germanic people filled the interior of Europe not until after the Israelites were deported by the Assyrians. And this can be well demonstrated. There's a whole series of papers on Christogenia that demonstrate this history. The further our people went, the further we traveled from Mesopotamia, the stronger a nation we became. The Ukraine, Germany, France, England, Britain, the United States. Micah chapter 4, the first verses, they can only describe the United States. It's the only nation assembled from all of from all of the nations of Europe, and many nations so come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh and go to the house of Jacob. It's the only nation that was ever founded on Christian principles. This is the nation described by Micah. The nations that our people left behind in Europe are the nations that are remnant nations, also described by Micah. A lot of people, Eli James for one, would say that Micah chapter 4 verse 5 proves that the other races will be here after the return of Christ, where it says, for all people will walk everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever. Well, it doesn't say that those other people will walk in the names of their God forever. But what's more important is that the names of their gods are gone. Their gods are dead. Their gods have never lived. And all the aliens are going to walk in the name of their God. At the end of time, at the end of this age, at the return of Christ. You can bet that all of the non-Israelites in the world will walk in the name of their God. And that God is not Yahweh. And if Eli James can find their gods, then he will find them. In fact, I bet he's going to be there with them. Speaking of the old world empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome... Daniel writes at 2.44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, is the second 
witness to Micah. Daniel 2, like Micah chapter 4, can only be describing the Germanic tribes which destroyed the old empires. The German people were related to the Parthians. The Parthians were Scythians, just like the Germans were. This is, can be established in ancient history beyond doubt. It was the Parthians who destroyed the old empire of the Medes and the Persians, until many of them themselves actually migrated into Europe. The Germanic tribes of the Goths and the Vandals dis destroyed, and, and the Angles and Saxons in Britain destroyed the old Roman Empire, overcame the old Greek Empire. Only the Germanic tribes can be the fifth kingdom of Daniel. The fourth kingdom of Daniel has to be Rome. Daniel and Micah are describing the spread of the Germanic people who are, as it is proven by those passages, the people of God. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. The kingdom shall be taken from you and given to another people bearing its fruits. That was a long conversion. It started long before Christ spoke to the people in Jerusalem, but that was still considered the city of God at Christ's time. So it was a long process, and it probably culminated with the, with the Reformation and the break of northern white of white northern Europe from the rule of the Catholic Church, not that a lot of Catholics aren't white, but most of our people broke from the power of the church at that time, and by doing that, that also broke the power of the church that it had over the people that were left. The church was able to exert much more power and influence over Catholics before the Reformation. Verse 44. And he falling upon the stone shall be broken in pieces. And upon whom it may fall, he shall be scattered like chaff. I must remark that Daniel 21 Verse 44 sounds a lot like Daniel 2.44. And, and this is very striking to me. In the NA27, the Greek scriptures, the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca, they actually cross-reference this verse, Matthew 21.44, to Daniel 2.44. So there are other scholars that see this connection between this passage in, with, with, and these words of Christ to the kingdom of Daniel 2.44. Now, a lot of people want to say that the kingdom of Daniel 2.44 is the Catholic Church. That's a lie. The Catholic Church did not destroy the Roman Empire. The Germanic people did. The Catholic Church did not subsume the old Persian Empire. The Germanic Parthians did. And hearing his parables, the high priests and the Pharisees 
knew that he speaks concerning them. And seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds, since they esteemed him to be a prophet. And we see that they, they really get hot and heavy with the conspiracy against Christ at this time. That'll be it for tonight. I'm, I'm sorry, that'll be it for tonight. I'm starting to trip over myself. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with Matthew chapter 22. Thank you.